0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode. This is the first episode in a series that I'm going to do about debunked scientific theories. One of the most common arguments I hear from people I debate is, such-and-such is just a theory, which drives me crazy. A scientific theory is an explanation of an aspect of the natural world and universe that has been repeatedly tested and corroborated in accordance with the scientific method. When possible, Theories are tested under controlled conditions in an experiment. In circumstances not amenable to experimental testing, theories are evaluated through principles of abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning is what we do when we assume we don't have all of the information. We have less than omniscience about something, but we can use statistics and inferences and prior evidence to establish what the most likely explanation for something is. Established scientific theories have withstood rigorous scrutiny and embody scientific knowledge. Modern science has only existed for a few hundred years, and many of our early attempts to describe the world were wrong. I would argue that sources for many of these errors were the corruption of dogmatic thinking inspired by ideas that had been around for centuries or millennia, and were assumed to be true in the first place. But happily, the scientific method has done away with those explanations. So while you can be confident that yes, the Earth really does revolve around the Sun, and yes, atoms really do exist, I think it is interesting and important to take a look back at what we got wrong. In today's episode, we are discussing spontaneous generation. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and want to support me, You can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. You can also find links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more by going to my YouTube channel and clicking the link in the banner that says Support the Channel. Okay, back to the episode. Spontaneous generation was the idea that living organisms could arise from non-living matter and that they did so regularly. Like many incorrect ideas, this goes back to Aristotle, who wrote that while some plants and animals are the products of other plants and animals, some grow spontaneously and not from kindred stock, and of these instances of spontaneous generation, some come from putrefying earth or vegetable matter, as in the case of a number of insects, while others are spontaneously generated in the inside of animals out of secretions of their several organs. Aristotle's works were dogmatic, and the progress of science was stalled thanks to this attitude. Ideas and experiments that served to confirm Aristotle's ideas were the only ones people attempted, although, for the most part, no actual scientific work was done on this at all. The more productive and scientific approach is to assume that what we know is false, and then believe what the data tells us. The next individual in the saga of spontaneous generation I want to talk about is Jean-Baptiste van Helmont, who died in 1644. I'll be giving the dates of when these characters died to give a sense of the timeline in which the theory changed. Many high school biology books teach the Van Helmont willow experiment. It's not in any way obvious how a tree gains mass, and Van Helmont wanted to try to narrow it down. He kept a willow sapling in a pot for several years and deduced that the tree must have gained mass by absorbing water, since the mass of the soil after all those years was basically the same. What he did not know, and couldn't have known, was that trees go out of thin air, literally. It is the sequestration of carbon dioxide and conversion of it into organic matter that becomes the mass of the growing plant. Plants contain a lot of water, but they are not made of water. Van Helmont also gave the world the word gas, which was derived from the Greek word for chaos. What is not normally discussed about Van Helmont is that he was an ardent believer in spontaneous generation. Van Helmont wrote about how creatures can spontaneously arise in the way somebody might write down a cooking recipe, quote, If a soiled shirt is placed in the opening of a vessel containing grains of wheat, the reaction of the leaven in the shirt with fumes from the wheat will, after approximately 21 days, transform the wheat into mice, end quote. Here's a scorpion recipe. Remove a brick from a wall, fill the space with basil, then cover the hole with another brick. Fumes from the basil, acting as a leavening agent, will have transformed the vegetable matter into veritable scorpions. It's impossible for me to imagine Van Helmont actually doing that experiment, because there's a 0% chance it would work. Therefore, I don't see how he could have done it, failed inevitably, and then told people, this is how you make scorpions. So, why even believe in spontaneous generation? Well, organisms do appear to come from nowhere, but that's because we don't look carefully. Remember, a scientific theory ought to be conducted through controlled experimentation. Throwing a sweaty shirt into a pile of grain and then coming back 21 days later to check for mice is not a controlled experiment. Our first scientist not content with the idea of spontaneous generation was Francesco Reddy, who died in 1697. Reddy's experiment was simple and controlled. He put meat in jars. Some of the jars were sealed, and some were left open. In the sealed jars, no maggots appeared, while in the open jars, maggots were everywhere. Now a prevailing hypothesis, which we will return to later, is that air has some sort of vital essence. A term that goes also all the way back to Aristotle, which was supposed to be the force contained within matter that powered life. Today we know that a singular vital essence isn't what makes life possible. This isn't an episode on what is and what isn't life, but perhaps in the future that would be an interesting topic. The point is, Reddy also conducted this experiment by covering the jars with fine mesh. This allowed air to freely pass into the jar. What made this even more compelling was, since the jars were technically exposed to air, flies were attracted to them and deposited their eggs on the mesh. Too big to fall in, the eggs stayed on top and maggots eventually hatched from them. This experiment conclusively proved that, at least with regards to maggots, they come from flies, not spontaneously from rotting flesh. But could other organisms spontaneously generate? Enter John Needham, who died in 1781. Needham was an English biologist and Catholic priest. Needham attempted to show spontaneous generation was possible by boiling broth and then sealing it. Needham's experiments resulted in a cloudy broth filled with bacteria. In Reddy's mind, whatever the vital essence of life was, it wasn't necessarily contained in the air, but within matter itself. Well, air is matter, but they probably didn't think that back then. Georges-Louis Leclerc, whose name I probably mispronounced, who died in 1788, says, quote, A body is molecules organized like a mold, but after death, these molecules are liberated from the body through putrefaction, then captured by the power of some other mold. The organic molecules are still full of life and are always active, and rework the putrefied substance, appropriating coarser particles, reuniting them, and fashioning a multitude of small, organized bodies." End quote. So according to Leclerc, organisms like earthworms, or mushrooms, or perhaps mold, could be formed in this way. The essence of life was within the matter itself, and it could rearrange itself into new forms. Lazaro Spallanzani, who died only a few years after Reddy in 1789, repeated Reddy's experiments, but went to greater lengths to rule out the idea of spontaneous generation. Today, we know that Reddy did not boil his broth long enough or at high enough temperatures to kill bacterial spores. Spellanzani's flasks remained lifeless as long as they were hermetically sealed. Spellanzani argued that living organisms in the air contaminated foods to produce mold or bacteria, but critics argued that air having a vital essence was a better explanation than these invisible microorganisms. Spontaneous generation, was finally rendered obsolete by Louis Pasteur, who died in 1895. Pasteur, who is probably one of the ten most important people who ever lived, revised Spellanzani's experiments to prove that air did not produce life, but that living organisms come from other living organisms. Pasteur attached a long, curved, straw-like glass stem to the flasks after sterilizing, or as we might today call, pasteurizing them. This of course exposed the contents of the flask to air, but made it so that organisms couldn't fall into the broth, so to speak. Pasteur's flasks remained contaminant-free indefinitely, but breaking the glass straw off would lead to rapid contamination. The body of evidence was now conclusive. Living organisms come from other living organisms. This did not necessarily debunk the idea of vital essence, But advancements in the chemistry of life in the following decades proved incontrovertibly that life is a series of chemical reactions that take place in living units known as cells. But where did life originally come from? Scientists and science advocates like me believe that life did arise from non-life billions of years ago on this planet. So does that mean that science does support the idea of spontaneous generation? No. Spontaneous generation maintains the idea that multitudes of complex organisms can arise fully formed. No biologist thinks that is possible or that life suddenly, in one instant, began existing in a fully formed mature cellular state on earth. The concept of where life came from, abiogenesis, is not the same as spontaneous generation at all. But this isn't an episode about abiogenesis, so I think we will leave it there. Thanks for listening and come back later for more content.